1: hi everyone connor here if you don't know already we have launched intelligence squared premium for bonus content early access listens and exclusive extras just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description and if you're an apple podcast person hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too thanks again for all your support welcome to intelligence squared i'm connor boyle in the fashion industry, there used to be two seasons a year, spring, summer, and autumn, winter. But today, fast fashion companies produce up to 52 micro-seasons every year, changing the clothes in their stores every week to keep customers coming back and purchasing more and more. Today on the podcast, we're asking, what's the real price we're all paying for the global clothing industry? And we're joined by Maxine Bedat, former lawyer, fashion industry entrepreneur, and author of Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. Our host today is Rosamund Irwin, media editor of the Sunday Times. Let's join Rosamund now.
2: Today we're talking about fashion and in the middle of the climate crisis asking, what's the real price we're all paying for the global clothing industry? It's estimated that the business of fashion contributes to around 10% of all global emissions. Couple that with worker exploitation and poor labour practices, and those impulse buys we pick up on a whim start to feel a little less like a feel-good bargain. Maxime Bada is looking to change that. A former lawyer, she later moved on to become an entrepreneur in the fashion industry, which has led her to advocate for much-needed change in the sector. She's the founder of the New Standard Institute, a not-for-profit dedicated to exposing greenwashing and malpractice in fashion. She's written a book about it all, Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. And she joins me to talk about it today. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Maxine. Thank you so much for having me. The first question I wanted to ask is, we hear a lot about the problems, probably not enough, but we do hear quite a lot about the problems of the global fashion industry. But somehow, we sort of squish it out of our mind when we are... In the shops and buying clothes, how do you make people care about these issues? Yeah, so
3: I think that you know, in the past decade, in the same way that you saw kind of maybe in the previous decade, more people interested knowing about uh, where their food come from. We're seeing the same thing in the fashion industry. Um, so it takes podcasts like this, and news articles, and books, and documentaries just to get the message out. You know, I don't think it's something that people want to think about every day, all the time, whenever they're making a purchase, but that it begins to, you know, seep into people's knowledge that we can both change these behaviors kind of on an individual shopping basis, but more importantly, and as other industries have done, change the laws so that this isn't about pitting people sort of short term, you know, they have a quick like dopamine hit to make them happy versus a garment worker or the climate crisis. So I think that's really, you know, our jobs as communicators is to share this information, to get the stories out there, uh, to get enough people to become invested in the subject, which people are, um, it's definitely a growing movement to be able to, you know, move
2: to legislation and
3: getting these policies changed. And
2: you mentioned the food industry as a comparison. People often talk about how detached we are from what we eat. Are we even more detached from the processes involved in making what we wear? Oh, yes,
3: <laughs> absolutely. People don't know what materials they're wearing. They don't know that polyester is actually plastic. Um, and That's kind of the primary material in our product these days. They certainly don't know that, you know, in a label, it has one country of origin, but it is most likely that, you know, that product has gone around the world maybe more than once before it's even landed in your closet. So, yes, I think we're we're much less familiar. We don't have textile mills anywhere near us to actually even know kind of the process where we still are at least a bit familiar with what a farm looks like.
2: Um, you mentioned the sort of origin, where clothes have come from. People might take comfort in seeing, say, a Made in Italy label. What does that actually mean, though, in terms of where that garment and the textiles involved have come from?
3: Yeah, so it doesn't say anything where the textile has come from. Um, it's the construction. So the construction is actually your the cut and sew, which is the last stage before becoming clothing. But before that, You've had to create the fibers somehow, either on a farm or through an oil rig in a chemical plant. You've had to spin, weave, knit, dye that fiber in to become a fabric. And then your final component is, is your cut and sew. And so that's really what that is indicating um, rather than the complete life cycle of, of the garment
2: and in terms of the working conditions that people are enduring you you have a chapter called my factory is a cage that that probably tells us rather a lot what are the most egregious things that you found during your investigation
3: it's hard to pick the most egregious i think you know there was sex trafficking which is not an uncommon thing to see in this sector just because it the sector tends to reach the most exploited workers so, you know, that is yeah, demonstrably egregious. But I think beyond that, the mechanized labor is really, you know, if you're highlighting the most egregious behavior, the mechanized labor where we are treating humans as machines and industrial engineering them so that every second of their working lives is monitored and maximized for output and speaking to the humans that are actually running those production lines and asking them what are they thinking about and they don't even have time to think you know it's just about keep your head down work harder don't make a mistake work harder don't make a mistake and doing that for 10 12 14 hours a day that is just inhumane on the most basic fundamental level beyond you know the fact that they're not you know, receiving even the legal minimum wage for their work and, you know, live in really tough conditions, just that inhumanity that we're putting on people all just to to turn a profit.
2: And have we seen anything change? I mean, we had obviously the Rana Plaza disaster nearly a decade ago now. And we had this conversation then about the conditions people were being made to work in and, and the disastrous effect of that has anything changed since then?
3: It's hard to tell a positive story, you know, in terms of the results that we've seen. You know, immediately after Rana Plaza in Bangladesh, there was reform of the safety of the structures that was limited to Bangladesh, that was limited to the safety of the structures themselves. And there was enough political will out of the Rana Plaza disaster um, for it was an organization called the Accord that was formed that really did help improve building structures within the cut and sew space in within Bangladesh but beyond those somewhat limited wins we have not seen measurable progress where we are though today which is progress is that we've seen a whole awakening a whole movement you know i run the new standard institute but there are other organizations out there like fashion revolution that are really opening people's eyes to this problem. There's so much more media attention. There still needs to be more, but there's much more from where we were so that now we are at a place where, you know, folks who are listening and organizations who are working on this can begin to present legislative proposals that can really start to address this. So I think we're at a better trajectory, certainly than we were before, but have we been able to make measurable gains? Uh, We're not there yet.
2: And, for listeners, could you just explain what the new Standard Institute does?
3: Sure. So the new standard Institute, we are, we call ourselves a think and do tank. So we collect data and information and the stories of the people and the places impacted by the fashion industry and really try to translate that information uh, for regular citizens, for the brands themselves to understand the impact and then to do something about that. So, For so long, the challenge was sustainability, quote unquote, in the fashion industry. It was that it was really a narrative that was built by the marketers within the brands themselves. So they were really dictating the terms of what impact reduction meant. That proved to, of course, be unsuccessful. And so we're really there to fill in the gap, get a clear picture of actually what's happening on the ground. And then the do part is you know moving either citizens to you know to try to change the way that they're consuming um or move citizens to try to engage with their lawmakers and we've um helped introduce legislation um in New York called the New York Fashion Act that has global implications but helping support other pieces of legislation in Europe and elsewhere as well so both the thinking part, which is bringing the data together, um, and the doing part, which is then using that data to actually try to affect change.
2: And how can the law be used to make this better then?
3: Yeah, so if we look at every other industry that has been regulated, it's following some of those cues. So California passed the fuel efficiency standards. And so what that was, was essentially saying, if you want to sell in our large market you as a car company have to produce your car in a certain way and have to have certain outcomes. I think that's a very similar kind of approach that we've taken with the New York Fashion Act is if you want to sell in New York as a company, you know, this is these are the requirements for doing so. And that's how you get to kind of the fundamentals of what is the company doing about the climate crisis? What is that company doing about their contribution to chemical management within the supply chain? What is that company doing with regard to the workers who are actually producing their garments?
2: And in your book, you follow a pair of jeans and you say that jeans once represent this sort of ideal of democracy and equality, but actually it's sort of frayed beyond anything to the point of distaste. Um, What do you mean by that? And why did you choose to focus on the pair of jeans as a way of telling this story?
3: Because a pair of jeans It's such a product that we all engage with, right? You know, almost everybody has a pair of jeans. On any given day, I'm most likely wearing jeans. It cuts across, you know, globally, we're all wearing them. Cuts across socioeconomic status, and as you pointed out in that sentence in the book, it was once seen as this very American product that represented freedom around the world, and. Really had a like a very strong positive meaning. And now it's kind of so ubiquitous, there's no association at all. It's just kind of the background in our lives. And I think also with that, the story of genes both ties us back to history. You know with the story of genes, we tell the story of cotton and the global role that cotton has played, and certainly within that, um have to embark on the um, impact of the institution of slavery. And then through today with globalization, how um, pair of jeans used to predominantly be made in the United States. And now the, the largest producer of denim is in Bangladesh. So it really traces globalization at the same time. So it tells us the story of our
2: past, our present, and hopefully our future as well. You focus um, for one one bit on, on Levi's and you point out they essentially no longer make anything. They're sort of a marketing brand now. And in the 1960s, you know that your pair of jeans would likely have been made in the USA. That obviously is not true now. How did that process go about changing over those 60 years? And how severe is that change?
3: It's a huge change, right? So we went from brands actually came out of the factory floor, they were the way to, out of the factories, they wanted to highlight the strengths of the skills coming out of that factory. And that's where the brand originated from in the apparel space. And we've moved from that world where the brand was producing the garment to today where the brand isn't producing anything at all. That's a fundamental change of what that company actually is or what the fashion industry actually is. They've gone from producers to, as you mentioned, marketers, designers but really you know just matching the product for the market not actually trying to you know be focused on any quality or any kind of things in the weeds within the factory itself
2: and obviously that's also sort of brought about a movement of labor from developed countries partly uh, to developing countries and the movement of all of those jobs what impact has that had in the u.s for example It's had a major impact.
3: Um, You know, this is something that we're now contending with and and trying to understand better. But in areas, you know, and this is not to poo-poo globalization. It's the way in which we chose to do globalization. I think that has proven to be problematic. So as those jobs, as those manufacturing jobs left the United States, there were pockets of communities that, you know, didn't have opportunities for employment Um, and that, you know, there's been surveys and research that, you know, have shown kind of those communities that have felt abandoned or been abandoned in in different ways are the ones that are more likely to kind of vote for more extremist politicians. So it's had an enormous impact, an unintended impact in the United States. So yes, we got cheaper products, um, but we got a changed political environment um and we had people that were really you know struggling out of it of course there were jobs then to be gained overseas which is of you know of a benefit there but i think we didn't do kind of planning and industrial policy that we could have done to mitigate the downside of you know moving these jobs overseas so i think we could have made it less exploitative for the the places where um the jobs went And we could have been a bit more thoughtful on the front end on if we are, you know, choosing to go down this path, what other opportunities and, you know, what other jobs and education uh, could the communities that, you know, lost those jobs have?
2: And with regards to that, how do we improve labor rights globally?
3: Yeah, so a few things. One is that we chose and it was the same, you know, some of the same companies who lobbied against having, including labor and environmental standards in trade deals. Um, So it's not this inevitability, right, that we have this globalized world where it's this race to the bottom and, you know, brands try to find the cheapest places and kind of pit one country against each other to who has the lowest, you know, environmental standards and the lowest labor standards, we could have, we can, could and can make it a prerequisite for trade. So that's, I think, one kind of areas within trade deals. But barring short of that, we can, you know, start incorporating it into our national and state laws. You know, if you want to sell into our jurisdiction, these are our prerequisites and our requirements. So there are ways to do it. We didn't start out that way. But I think we're seeing now within the EU, within the United States and elsewhere, kind of creative legislative means in which we can start building these things into the system and and improving things so it's a race to the top rather than this race to the bottom that we currently find ourselves.
2: From business, we hear a lot about social responsibility now. How much is that just talk rather than reality?
3: Yeah, so I I always want to believe um, in in this talk, and I think you know I never try to apply intention to it, but I look at the broader context in which these you know promises are being made, and we still exist in you know a profit maximizing economy um, that's still where rewards are given in you know the stock market, and until that changes you know, we should expect that those promises are not going to be the top priority. Um, And so you begin to see, you know, within industry, you know, if you have these quiet conversations, they'll say, oh, you know, we've signed up for science-based targets, the big climate target. But then they will admit, well, that's really an aspiration for us. It's more kind of directional. And so I think that's why legislation is critical, because it will help advance and prioritize for companies kind of what they have to do. So it's not a, well, we're going to put money to this if we can kind of build a case that it improves our bottom line. No, we're going to fund this because this is the requirement to do business in this jurisdiction. And I think that's the direction that we're really going to need to go. And companies that are well on their way, you know, will benefit in that environment. And, you know, so should see it as a good thing as well.
2: One of the companies you do mention in the book is Amazon, obviously, the sort of retail bear moth, online retail bear moth, and um, the working conditions in the US uh, for its staff. What did you find out there? I mean, there's a woman you, you quote, whose life seems almost impossible to manage working there in terms of childcare, and very, very tough and exhausting work.
3: Yeah, well, I think, you know, what I found in speaking to people that are working within these Amazon facilities in the U.S. is in terms of that mechanized labor that I was speaking about with the garment workers, it's very similar. Their every second is monitored and maximized. So it's a very similar kind of speaking to them about the pressures of their day. It's very similar. And then also in the same category, just the You know, when you start to work with industrial engineers who think about people as, you know, just an input number rather than the humans, full humans that they are, you get these outcomes where, you know, hours can change or hours are set that make it impossible to actually have a child and take care of them because they are required to go into the company at a time when no child care is available. And, you know, and, and very kind of basic things like this where it just, you know, for this one woman that you were mentioning in the book, it just doesn't compute. Like she literally there is no solution for her. Um it's not just that it's difficult and stressful. There was literally nothing that she could where she could take her child. And so I, I think it's, you know, we tend to think about these things as kind of, you know, global north and global south problems but how we are structuring things the lives of the of the people are contending with some of the similar issues as we begin to only think about people as their the output that they can have
2: and then with those jobs and also many of the other jobs you mention in the book there is this threat of automation so they're not only jobs that are you know the conditions are pretty horrific at times but then you've also got the threat that those jobs might go away. What what do you think there in terms of automation and the fashion industry and the garment industry?
3: Yeah, so it, it was interesting to speak to the textile factory owners and the garment factory owners. It's not like there's one machine that's going to come and you know completely take away all of the jobs at once. It was more that over time they expected different steps to be you know, taken over by either more efficiency or that that could be replaced by a machine. I think previously kind of the automation has been seen as, you now yes, one robot will come in and like do all the things. And that doesn't seem to be the case, um, certainly in the garment production world because automation is very good for repeated, very simple tasks. And there's, you know, if you put in a waistband into your jeans, you have to curve around, um, which is not something an algorithm can pick up so easily. So I think it's a more kind of insidious rather than this kind of one day or one machine that's going to magically take all the jobs away. I don't want to say magically, that's not the right word, obviously. But, you know, I, I think it's more that, yes, there is this constant kind of Little by little, the jobs will be taken over by machines. And I think we have to really think about that and think about kind of what are the jobs of the future? How do we make those both jobs and then have them be good jobs? And I think my hope for the book is can we move to that conversation? So I'm not saying I have the answer, <laughs> um, but we need to be instead of, you know, discussing whether automation is going to happen or not. Is it a good thing or is it not a good thing? you know, globalization, is it good or bad? These things are happening. What are we going to do as we move to this place to make sure that there are enough jobs for people, that they have enough resources in those jobs? And I think that that's kind of the, the question of our time, you know, and how do we have those jobs in a way that's not exploitative to the people or the planet at the same time? And that's really, I think the challenge for us in the next decade.
1: Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe.
2: we could explore more the environmental impact of fast fashion um everything from sort of fertilizers and pesticides to the disposal and waste element is set out in your book um it is shocking how little clothing gets recycled isn't it
3: yeah it doesn't essentially and i think you know i don't know who said it but there's no away right there when we throw something away it's going to a place Or even when we give it away and we think it's going to one place, it all ends up in a landfill or being burned. Um, So, yeah, very little, very, very, very little of it is being recycled into a new garment. Um, We just don't have the technical capacity and skills to do that. Nor do we have this kind of infrastructure we would need to sort out the clothing in advance. Because once you've removed a label off of something you don't know, you know, it's hard to forensically figure out what that product even is. So yes, and and all of this is happening. I think sometimes you know in places like New York where garbage collection is so efficient, or certainly you know in the UK and Europe, you don't see trash, so you don't actually engage with understanding just how much trash we are producing. But it's it is enormous amounts. It's uh, I think eighty kilograms a year in the United States of just pure apparel uh, waste. And even when we donate our clothes, it's a whole other waste stream, just something that we've exported to uh, the global South.
2: So what happens when we do donate our clothes then?
3: Yeah. So when we donate our clothes, you know, there's this idea that we are, you know, that it's being given away to somebody that is in need. Um, That's not exactly what happens. So when we donate our clothing, If I'll take a U.S. example, saying it will be sold in the Salvation Army, it's being sold to anybody who comes in there and the funds that are generated from that sale go to then the whatever nonprofit cause. But very little of that is sold on the sales floor of those stores. Something like only 6% of the clothing that is coming in actually makes its way into a, you know, shopper's cart and they're actually buying it. The rest of that is unsaleable there. And so that excess is bundled up and sold off by category. So like women's summer tops or men's suiting, put in a bale and sold throughout the global South. So, you know, part of my book um, was traveling to Ghana. There's also big secondhand markets in places like Chile uh, where then those bales are sold and you can't see what's inside of them. So there's a lot of risk taken on by the sellers. Um, and there's attempts to then sell the product there. The problem is, is that not only is it limiting the those countries' abilities to develop their own market, but it is also becoming waste there. Uh, researchers are finding, and there's still limited data on this, but one graduate school study found that 40% of the clothing in this one market, in a major market in Ghana, Kantamanto, um, 40% of the stuff that was coming in was never sold at all and went directly to either the landfill or informal waste management, which is just burning the product. So we're, we're really exporting our excesses to regions of the world that have less capacity than we do to handle this stuff. Um, and all while we think we're donating and doing something great. <laughs>
2: And why is so little of it fit to be sold in this country or in in, in the U.S. or wherever? We just have so much
3: of it, right? You know, uh, there's over a hundred billion new units of clothing sold every year. Um, it's become, you know, in order to have those sorts of volumes, you know, companies are building business models purely around disposability. So it's not a quality product. It's hyper trendy, and so. It's something that looks good from afar, but once you see it up close, it's not something you really want to be wearing very often. So we just have too much clothing and there isn't, you know, it's its enough clothing every year for every man, woman, and child on the planet to have a whole brand new wardrobe. The planet and its people can't handle it, don't want this stuff. And so that's why we're having trouble finding, you know, ultimate buyers for these things.
2: And how did writing this book change the way you shop? It really, you know, crystallized, you know, for me,
3: through the writing, through the travel, just how many resources, environmental, human and otherwise, go into every product that we purchase. And so, you know, that was very much made real to me in the story of this book. And so that's not something you can unsee. So I think about that, you know, if I am making a purchase, but I think, you know, ultimately the book empowered me as a citizen. I kind of didn't realize, you know, there's a whole chapter of the book on marketing and how we've really been trained to see ourselves as consumers first, rather than citizens that can possibly have an impact on policy. That Part to me, the research for that chapter was so eye opening. Of like, wait a minute, we've been this is something we've been taught. This is not some inevitability. Like we just don't care. We've been trained to always see ourselves as consumers, so we can train ourselves um to see ourselves as citizens who can actually have an outcome on policy. Uh, And so I think that to me was kind of the most profound impact of writing the book was to reorient myself. You know, not you know I was never a campaigner, or I didn't call myself an environmentalist, or, you know, that wasn't how I defined myself, but I just saw, like, as a normal citizen, you know, person in the world that has a kid and another one coming that, you know, I cared about the planet and its people, and this is what was going to be necessary to affect change. I think that, to me, was the most profound outcome of writing the book.
2: Sorry to ask a much less profound question, then. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) But how often do you actually buy any pieces of clothing then? And how do you make sure those purchases are good ones? In honesty, I
3: I don't focus so much of my attention on that because I know that the disclosures that a company would have would not actually tell me enough to be able to make an informed decision. So when I am going about making a purchase first of all, I've done a few things to stop the habit or the urge. So I've stopped following influencers on Instagram. I unsubscribe from Instagram every once in a while. You know, I've removed the reminder emails coming from brands all the time that flood your inbox, you know, all throughout the day. So I have fewer cues in my day to consume and go shopping. Um, that has helped very much slow things down for me. And then I kind of put in little roadblocks for me to make sure that I'm, you know, being thoughtful. So if I like something, um, you know, I'll save it on a Pinterest board. And then if I actually, you know, I'm feeling like I there's a product that is kind of missing in my wardrobe, I will go to that Pinterest board and see, do I still like that thing? Um, You know, is that something I really is really going to be of use to me? Um, So I've, you know, definitely uh slowed my clothing consumption down. I feel a lot better about the purchases that I do make just because I know I've really thought about what role they are playing in my life, like in my, you know, daily uniform. And so, yeah, I think I've definitely become more thoughtful in my purchases as a result, but I'm not looking into kind of every claim that that company has. The most important thing for me is Is this going to be something I'm going to wear often? Do I actually need it? Do I actually like it? And that's going to be the thing, at least from an environmental point of view, the most significant driver of environmental reduction in clothing is how many times the purchaser is actually wearing that garment.
2: And how do we get other consumers to ask that exact same question? Will I wear this, you know, a hundred times rather than twice? you know, inviting them into the process,
3: because, you know, th- through this and through the work of the New Standard Institute, I spend a lot of time speaking to shoppers. And if you spend any time actually thinking about it, people are do not have a happy relationship with the clothing that they buy. You know, it is not just physically overwhelming their wardrobes that they are expanding them. And, you know, there's some psychology research on how that's actually increasing stress levels in people. But that's not clothing that makes them feel particularly good. This isn't saying don't ever buy anything ever again. And you should feel guilty all the time. It's the opposite. It's an invitation to actually like your clothing again. It's an invitation to get to know your own body and your own style and what works for that rather than just being the passive receivers of tons of marketing messaging. And so it's not about sacrifice at all. It's actually about an invitation to, to love your wardrobe and engage in it more deeply.
2: One thing you say in the book is that fashion has, and, and the clothing industry more generally has traditionally been sort of relegated to the style section. I wonder if you think one of the reasons that we haven't looked at this issue enough over the years is because fashion is treated and the broader clothing industry as sort of trivial. And I mean, it's a a very misguided idea that, but do you think that's part of the problem? Yes, definitely. I mean, I've, how many times have I
3: spoken to environmental leaders? And, you know, again, this has changed over the past just couple of years, or is changing, I should say, and spoken to them about, you know, just the environmental impact, which is more than France, Germany, and the United Kingdom combined and just becoming worse over time. So of huge significance and an environmental leader will be like, oh, that's sweet. You should meet my wife. She, you know, she loves clothing, which is if the wife carried the purse strings and the influence, like, sure, that's fine. But that is, you know, not not likely the case in those circumstances. So I think that there, it has been very late in the game because of Yeah, this idea that it's frivolous, it's meaningless, yet it is, you know, one of the most significant polluting industries drives culture and commerce globally. You know, one of the largest employers of women, kind of the most exploited class, you know, generating some of the greatest wealth accumulation globally. But yeah, we haven't put it under the microscope or put any attention to it in the way we have with other industries, because it is seen as frivolous or girly or silly and i think that's to the to the detriment of of the industry and the, the planet and its people
2: i wanted to end on a positive note what are the things that make you optimistic that we might get change on this
3: i am optimistic um basically i am a realist right like we have an opportunity all of us to either engage in these subjects or not engage if we do engage and we engage ourselves as citizens to demand these things, these things will change. And, you know, if you look at even the organic food movement in the United States, that has become quite significant. That got started from moms who were fed up with the pesticides on apples being served to their kids. You know, you get a concentrated group of folks together, you can change policy and change the way, you know, things are operating. So that gives me great promise. It's not that these things are intractable, can't go away, um, but it is up to us to actually step up and participate. And so, you know, in that way, I'm a realist. Like let's, it's an invitation, you know, for for folks to get involved, to have their voices heard. And that's going to be the thing that either gets things like the Fashion Act passed or not. To me, that's being both a realist and, you know, that's why I get motivated every day is that I know that solutions are there. Um, And there are companies throughout the supply chain that are working on change. And if you can change the underlying laws, you help accelerate um, the progress that those companies are already making. Um, So there's a lot to be hopeful for, but we can't just rest on our laurels and we can't just expect that somebody else is doing the work for us. We need to get involved.
2: Thank you so much, Maxine. Thank you so much. Maxine's book is Unravel: The Life and Death of a Garment. This has been Intelligence Squared with me, Rosamund Irwin. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.